This is Inside the Times. I'm Stephen Hiltner. If you, like many of us at the Times, have found yourself enthralled by Stranger Things or by Westworld or by Making a Murderer, then by now you already know that these days there is no shortage of quality television. There are so many options, in fact, that it can often be hard to decide what to watch. Well, the Times is here to help. At a recent Times Insider event, Gilbert Cruz, the New York Times television editor, sat down with Margaret Lyons, a television critic, and John Coblin, a television reporter. They offer insights, critiques, and, of course, recommendations. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thanks for, uh, for being here tonight. I'm Gilbert Cruz. I'm the TV editor here at the New York Times. Right next to me is Margaret Lyons, who is one of our TV critics, specifically our TV critic on watching, which is something that we'll talk a little bit about. And then John Coblin there at the end is one of our TV uh, reporters here at the Times. Uh, I could introduce them more, or I could let them talk about who they are and what they do. Uh, I want to ask John first, very briefly, yes. um, how did you get here? And what do you do at the New York Times? Wow. Um, let's see. Briefly. Uh, I used to cover uh, sports at the website Deadspin. And the Times needed a fashion reporter. I had once worked at Women's Wear Daily. And they said, would you like to cover fashion? I said, I don't know anything about fashion, despite this very nice suit that I have on uh, tonight. There's a tradition at the Times where they like a reporter who doesn't know anybody on a beat. So I was like, I don't know anybody. They said, great. So covered fashion for a year and TV for the last year and a half. What uh, would you say is the biggest difference between the two industries? Fashion knows how to throw a party. Television people <laughs> do not know how to throw a party. That is easy. <laughs> and Margaret, what did you do before you got here? And what would you say that you do here? Um, I've been a TV critic my whole adult life. Starting my senior year of college, I wrote a TV column for my college newspaper, and it sort of Went from there, I was at Time Out Chicago and then Entertainment Weekly. And then we worked together at New York Magazine. Gilbert already knew that part. <laughs> and, uh, and then I've been here since March. Um, mostly what I do is watch a ton of TV and then try to tell my readers what they might like. And if they like something, they might like this. And even if I don't love a show or have beef with it, um, if you like this kind of show, this still might be for you, that kind of stuff. I like to think of myself as like the camp counselor of television. <laughs> Guys, it's going to be so fun. We're all doing it together. Uh, so Margaret and I used to work at New York Magazine at a website called Vulture, which is New York Magazine's sort of entertainment site. Uh, and for the past, uh, myself for the past year and since March for Margaret, uh, I've been working on this new Times Endeavor, uh, Endeavor, which is called Watching. And it's basically a very service-focused way of trying to tell people um, what it is they should be watching out there when it comes to TV and also when it comes to movies. Uh, very briefly, the idea is because of the streaming revolution, because of all the cable channels there are, because of all the different streaming platforms that we have, uh, there's more to watch than ever before. There are more ways to watch those things than ever before. Uh, and, it's, and it's harder to figure out what it is uh, that might be right for you. Um, so we have someone like Margaret who watches more TV than anyone I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, she watches it all or watches as much of it as she can and then she tells uh, you, the readers, the subscribers to her newsletter and the users of the site what is good out there and not only what is good but why it's good for them. Just because a TV show is great or just because a TV show or movie is critically acclaimed doesn't mean that it is right for you as a person, as an individual. That's sort of a distinction that we try to make. There are very good things out there that I don't like. There are very good things out there that you probably don't like. My first big question for Margaret as a TV critic is, what did you think you would be doing when you started as a TV critic long ago, and how has it changed over the years, especially given how much TV there is out there? The biggest thing that's changed is how quickly shows come out. So when I first started, um, it was like 12 years ago, and it used to be you had all the fall pilots, and then that was kind of it. There would be like a new batch of shows in March. But up until two years ago, I guess, when Wayward Pines came out, I had seen every single network pilot that had been released during that time. And then I just sort of hit a wall, and like Wayward Pines just kind of broke me, and I was like, I can't watch this. <laughs> uh, so I've seen a ton of just like, you know, garbage because a lot of shows would just come and go really quickly or I saw shows where I watched you know the five episodes they sent out and it got canceled before it aired but the big thing now is that TV shows premiere year-round and so we still have a much clearer fall TV season 
versus say like August, but there are still a lot of shows that premiere in July and August. Or when I used to write day by day weekly listings, you know, the time between basically November 1st and January 1st was almost impossible. There was nothing new coming out. It was all reruns, like shows were not even airing new episodes that were in season. And that's completely different. There are 20 premieres in November and December. Um, that has been a huge shift. And so whatever sort of like panic of scarcity that used to kind of happen, especially around the holidays, that scarcity is gone. And the other big thing is that now you get, here's 13 episodes. And uh, that was not at all the case even a little while ago. Uh, just to be clear, you get an entire season oh, I mean before. For, I mean, just like a Netflix series will put out all 13 episodes right at once. Um, and certainly that was not the case on an HBO show. So that changed a lot of the ways I think people expect to watch a show. And being able to sort of go back and have access to shows, you know, like I remember, like if you missed an episode of ER, like that was it. <laughs> like you didn't get a chance until the summer. And even then, only maybe because the summer season's shorter than the fall season, right? So there were just ones you were like, I'll never know you. And like, like that doesn't happen now. You have like immediate access, not only to the shows that aired that week, but the sort of library. Like I have thousands and thousands of DVDs because it never occurred to me that I would just be able to Google something and, and be able to like find a clip. Whereas like even five years ago, that was not as standardized. And certainly 10 years ago when I had like my own personal library expecting that this might be the only existing copy of you know the original pilot of 30 Rock. Like, okay, now that's out there and people can have that if they want it. But the the library exists and is immediate and available. And then shows also come out in a, in a bundle, which is different. Uh, John, you've been yes. doing this for a shorter period of time than yes. Margaret, but so you went from sort of someone who watched TV to someone who covers the industry. What has been the most surprising thing about how it all works? Well, there are channels beyond HBO, which I was not aware of that fact a year and a half ago. Um, I actually just quickly want to jump on what Margaret just said, because one 13-episode season, something that an HBO or a Showtime would do, now almost everybody, I mean, you see this throughout all of television. So you have shorter seasons, but way more television shows. And to put a stat on this, in 2009, so seven years ago, there were 200 scripted television shows. This year, there will be close to 450 scripted television shows. So it has exploded out of nowhere, or just in the last seven years. And for that, we can thank streaming services like Netflix, which didn't create original scripted television shows four years ago. Right now, for shows they either have on the air, Netflix originals, or that they said are coming is 71 shows. That's just for adults scripted. They also have a lot of kids shows. They have docu documentaries like Making a Murder. And I think that's more than the combined output of HBO, Showtime, Stars, like a ton of NFX, a ton of channels. So it's a lot of TV. So I have a lot of television watch, but I also have to make phone calls all day. So I would say <laughs> balancing the two is pretty tricky. Margaret's critic, you're a reporter. Yes. What, what were your big, I'm going to talk to Margaret a lot about uh, great TV. Yeah. But what were your big stories this year? So I cover entertainment and TV news, cover both. Talk a little bit about how the time splits up coverage here. Yes. Yeah, so I work in the business section, business deck. So we sit on the second floor, and then there is the culture department, which is up on the fourth floor. So I cover TV news, I cover the money, I cover what's a hit, what's not a hit. I cover, you know, this network's doing well, this network's doing poorly, this show got canceled, this show got renewed, like I did today with HBO, which renewed Westworld, Insecure, and Divorce. I would say the culture stories, stuff that you would see in arts and leisure, uh, they tend to be feature stories. You know, we're gonna, Stephen Colbert, is doing a lot of live shows. Let's sit in Stephen Colbert's office and talk about that. story that I did on Stephen Colbert is he's hired a new executive producer. The show is having trouble. Not to say that once the, you know, the culture department, everything's happy-go-lucky, and we're writing about, boy, there are lots of problems. There's a mix of both. So I would say that's, isn't that a fair breakdown yeah. of the two departments? So what I do is I make phone calls throughout the day to television executives about, you know, what are the trends that you're noticing right now? Today, with that HBO news, with Insecure, Westworld, and divorce getting renewed, over the summer, HBO executives were telling me, we're not so sure about this Westworld. It cost HBO $100 million to put together that first season. It was hugely expensive and had development problems. So they were telling me, 
we hope it's good. We don't know how this is going to land. We had that show Vinyl, um, which did not do so well. And they had to yank after one season. Um, and they weren't sure how it was going to do. Well, Westworld is officially a hit. It's a hit for right now. It has a lot of viewership. The internet's writing a lot about it. Uh, and in my phone, just as we were walking in here, I had an angry email from HBO <laughs> spokesperson saying, who said it wasn't going to be a hit? We knew it was going to be a hit. Anyway, that is sort of the differences between me and Margaret, I'd say, on a day-to-day -day basis. So the statistic that John brought up, the sort of rise in scripted TV series, uh, is one that I believe came last year from uh, the head of FX, the FX network, when he coined uh, this phrase, which, is, which, is, which every TV critic has used as a way of saying, like, oh, I have so much TV to watch. Uh, it's called Peak TV. And it has been what the TV industry has been talking about for more than a year. And as a critic, Margaret, again, as someone who watches more TV than anyone I know, is it even possible for you, whose job it is, to do nothing but watch TV and then sometimes write about it? Uh, is it possible? <laughs> Mostly it's to write about it, guys, to be clear. <laughs> uh, is it possible for you to sort of do your service to the readers in terms of watching all of this stuff? There's no way to watch everything, right? But no one would say that you're not really a book fan if you hadn't read every book. There's no standard that we expect you to have seen every movie ever made, right? Like, so TV used to have just more of a scarcity issue where there was, a, there was always like plenty of TV. It's just that it was not always as good. There wasn't as much good stuff. There's always been good TV shows, right? Like, there, it's not that we invented having good TV shows. It's that everything that's second best is now way better. There are plenty of good shows going way back, but everything else has suddenly improved drastically. I mean, I think the term peak TV is sort of fraught because the person who coined it benefits from the idea that there's too much television and only he and his company are in charge of making the good kind, right? So FX does better when people know that FX makes good shows and everyone else is late to the party. That's part of his job is to coin terms and popularize the idea that only FX knows what's up. And that isn't true. So, like peak TV, like in I don't know what in what capacity. Like that last year will be the most shows. It's the most of any year so far. But I don't think we're going down. It's not the peak. It's on the climb. Um, but no, of course I can't watch everything. I try to watch anything I think I might love. So like I'm willing to give almost anything a chance, with a couple of exceptions. Like mm, like most Real Housewives stuff, I just can't do. Oh, yeah. Just not for me. <laughs> um, but you know. To my sisters, like chagrin, when <laughs> we're all together, like let's watch this one. And I just can't. So yeah, there's no way to watch all shows, but I think there's still like I think we all still have the experience of like, ugh, there's nothing on, right? Like, so the idea that there's too much TV is sort of true, but the sensation of there being too much TV, I don't often feel. Like there's plenty of just stuff is like mm, garbage, garbage, garbage. Like no, 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 no. If I had wall-to-wall -wall excellent shows and I only ever reviewed shows that I thought were 10 out of 10, like amazing, my life is different. Like it's like this show's my family. That'd be one thing. But there are still plenty of shows that I think are bad, plenty of shows that I think are spiritually bankrupt, plenty of shows that have like just like garbage production values or no beating heart or just like at what point did everyone say, like, yep, good enough? Like, there's a lot of shows like that. And so the idea that we all, like, now there's just too much good stuff is almost true. There is a lot of good stuff. But I haven't, certainly, I don't think any of us could feel like, there's too much goodness, no more goodness. Like, I don't think that's, I don't think we're in danger of that happening anytime soon. Well, to jump in with the, on the other hand, right here, because everything you said is totally correct. But on the other hand, I mean, this is true of my friends, and this is true of a number of executives I've spoken to, which is, I don't know what to watch. Like, there is this state of paralysis that you fall into. I mean, you're a particularly astute watcher, more so than me, where you can quickly suss through these things. So many people I've talked to are like, I don't know what to watch. And you made an interesting point about the FX guy saying peak TV is a matter of strategy, because then it's just come to us. But there's also something true there. TV networks face a business problem because with so much television right now, in addition to all the technological changes where we're looking at Snapchat and Instagram and everything else, ratings have plummeted. And a lot of these TV channels, they need good ratings in order to keep these things on the air. They also benefit from our very, very expensive cable bills. So they do have this base of revenue that will come in constantly, but they do face a business issue as those ratings continue to fall. I mean. 
so many times I will have conversations with TV executives who will say, well, ratings, is, that's not the only thing. We want it to be buzzy. We want it to be this. We want it to be that. Because then Netflix or Amazon or Hulu will come and write us a very, very big check. And they will take the first season of American Crime Story, uh, The People versus O.J. Simpson, which is what happened with FX. The ratings were good, and then they got enormous checks. So there is sort of a business issue here as well in order to keep all these things on the air. Oh, sure. There's a business issue for you know, just about everything. But I think the anxiety that viewers feel, like that's to me more a conversation between like you and your therapist versus you and your DVR, right? <laughs> like you don't go to a library and think like, ah, never mind, and like turn around and run out, right? You're like, yay, I have choices. I am, right? Like, so I think the idea that like viewers are like despondent over having too many options feels overstated to me. Are we, is the media propagating this? I mean, why, like, why, why are people so anxious over this? Is it because, because life we, is hard all the time, oh, yeah. and TV is supposed to be easy. Why do people have anxiety? No, why do because people have anxiety over? Because in the world, Gilbert. It's hard out there, man. Everyone's just trying to get by. Like, what do you, I don't know what the answer is, but like, if if you truly are experiencing like dark, sad feelings from not knowing if you should watch The Good Wife, like, I don't think that's The Good Wife's problem. Right. Right? Like, I, well, I would, I, would say, I would say to your point, though, you talked about the differences in just being a critic in a matter of, you know, seven, eight, nine years. Think of it for a viewer as well, where it's like you've got people in your ear saying, have you seen Stranger Things? Have you seen this? And it's, oh, I'm behind again. I'm never going to catch up. Is that how you feel, though, when a friend asks you if you've read a book and you haven't read? You're not like, no! Except are, that people are you? do not, sadly, people do not talk about books as much as they do about TV. Okay? I wish it were true. And just because, I mean, publishing, they're going through their own issues, uh, <laughs> God knows. But the way we receive shows and the number of shows, it's changed so drastically. I think that is part of, we're still getting used to this. And the number will continue to go up, up, and up. The number of scripted TV shows, one that's supposed to be around 450. But we are expecting it to then go down in the next few years for exactly the business issues we were discussing before. There's just ain't enough money. And television <laughs> is a uniquely expensive proposition. There are just costs built in that you can't get around. You have to pay actors. You have to pay for insurance, locations. So there is this, you know, what about doing it in a warehouse in Bushwick somewhere? And we'll just get a little camera. It's not going to look like a good show. This is the point you made before. Production values matter. You know, HBO with Westworld, it's a beautiful looking show. Netflix with The Crown, beautiful looking show. And that stuff will continue to matter. What, talk a little bit about ratings, because again, I've only been here for about a year and a half, and I feel like in the short time I've been here, uh, you hear about day of ratings, you hear about <laughs> L plus three, which is live plus three days, you hear about L plus seven, you have services like Netflix and Amazon who will never tell you what, how many people watch their show and have no interest in telling you how to watch that show, or how many people watch that show. Uh, how do you, how do we, how does anyone sort of judge what success is these days? It's really hard. I mean, Fox, which had the benefit of broadcasting the World Series this year and shot up from worst to first among the big four broadcast networks, thanks to the World Series. Before that, they were having, a couple weeks ago, a lot of trouble. And they literally sent us ratings information that I think was something, it was L plus 30, which meant here's a, a viewer who watched it within 30 days of a show's, of an episode's original broadcast. And it's like, guys, come on, we used to do one day, now we're doing 30 days. It's hard, but advertisers still pay and still only care about if you've watched it within the first three days of its broadcast. So ratings, yes, they continue to slip. I think this will balance out at some point when we come up with a new standard, which says, okay, this can account for number of times you watch this on, you know, on a, uh, CW.com, uh, watching it online, in addition to watching it off your DVR or streaming it in some other fashion. I mean, one of the interesting storylines, I'm realizing I didn't answer one of your questions before, Gilbert, one of the big stories of this year, the one thing that was supposed to be immune to this was live television. Award shows, they were immune to the ratings collapse, and football and sports. And what have we seen in the last few months? Award shows, ratings from the Oscars to the Country Music Awards to the Emmys, they have nosedived. NFL ratings, they have nosedived. So that is a real cause for concern. And there are a million theories as to why, but theory I continue to stick with is, you know, we're sitting there looking at our phone. We, uh, if, I don't want to sit there and watch a three-hour football game or a three-and-a-half-hour football game. 
when I've got the highlights on Twitter in two minutes. So we're in uh, the middle of the fall season. Uh, by this point in the past, to the joy of uh, some reporters and editors, there would have been several shows that were canceled by now. You know, I know uh, I used to want to know what the worst show of the fall would be. You'd sort of put bets on it because you wanted to know that that was going to be the first show that was canceled. That does not happen anymore. Definitely hasn't happened as much uh, in the past two years. Uh, the only thing that's really happened this year with the fall TV shows is uh, ABC has announced that one of his shows, they're not going to make any more episodes past the first nine that they've made of the show Notorious, starring Piper Perabo. Um Last year, the first cancellation, also an ABC show, and I can't remember, was Blood and Oil? What was the first one oh, that got yeah. canceled? No, it was the one with Erica Christensen and Chuck what? from yes. Gossip Girl. Um, Whatever that show, obviously, I can't remember. <laughs> oh, oh, the murder one? Yeah, and it's yeah, in the 80s. The really yeah, bad the one. L.A. murder. That yep, so that's bad. it. Okay. It took, I think it was mid-November, it was right around this time of year, when that became the first show to, that was formally canceled. The reason why it's taking two months for shows to get canceled now goes back to exactly what we've been talking about. Executives are so anxious about what if we've got a hit on our hands? We don't want to cancel this thing when we are desperate for hits because ratings are falling. And they have a sea of statistics now that they didn't used to have, where it's like, well, look, if you look at the, the L24, you know, days 20 to 24, this really picked up. So they're giving everything a chance to survive. And even though, as ratings fall, it's created this counterintuitive thing where they're keeping these shows on the air longer. And Notorious will be almost definitely canceled. And it's a really terrible show. And Conviction probably... Not far behind. No, probably not far behind. I mean, these shows, not all these shows are going to survive. A lot of them are going to go. It's just taking them a lot longer. I mean, if you consider something like Seinfeld, that took a few years for it to catch on. It took two or three years, and NBC said, all right, we'll give it a chance. And everybody I talked to, they were like, well, what if we have our Seinfeld on our hands and we're getting rid of it too soon? I don't think conviction is going to be Seinfeld. I don't think we have to worry about that. Uh, sure, but it's not just that. Like the what happens when ratings in general go down is that the idea of launching anything better than what you have is more risky, right? So if ratings are always going up and you have a dud, you're like, well, if we roll the dice, like we're likely to have something do better. But especially at ABC, it's like, well, if we roll the dice, odds are it's going to be worse than this. And it costs yep. more to make a new show than it does to just keep airing the show we basically already paid for. And you made this point earlier, you know, you would have reruns, you would have this when we're talking about rolling premiere dates. Networks do not broadcast reruns across the board anymore because reruns are truly death for ratings. It is a disaster when you put on a rerun. So they will do everything they can to avoid putting on a rerun of a show. So you can't have color bars up. So we'll go ahead and keep conviction. We'll let it roll. It's nine, ten episodes. Margaret, as a critic, what are the big fall TV shows, or at least the ones that you are most invested in, the ones that you think uh, have a chance of surviving and that are actually good? Probably the big hit is This Is Us on NBC. That's one with like Mandy Moore and Jess from Gilmore Girls. Like, uh, it's like really schmaltzy, and people call it sort of like the next. Like, if you liked Parenthood, you might like This Is Us. And I think that's sort of fair, but I also think Parenthood had, like, a much clearer idea of how people actually think and behave. And I think This Is Us does not have a clear idea of how people think and behave. So it's basically, like, there's three adult siblings, and then we see them in their adulthood, and then we flash back and we see them in their childhood. And, like, every episode has, like, a soaring monologue, and it's, like, a lot of crying. And, like, I love that, but I don't think the show is that good. But I think people were really, really hungry for a show where it's, like, there's no cops, there's no vampires, like, no one is murdered, no one is tortured, like, there's not a crazy wall of, like, who killed who this person? So it's just, like, oh, my God, I just, like, want a show where people, like, eat dinner and, like, hang out. And it's, like, I am the same way. And, like, I, you know, I mean, like, I like cop and murder shows, too, but, like, you know, bread and roses, we can't just have those. So I wanted, like, I think people were really, really into that. And so that became this, like, huge, like, that's definitely the sort of breakout hit of the fall. Dan Fogelman, the creator of that show, has another show called Pitch that I vastly prefer. That's on Fox, but cannot get any traction. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope this is one of those shows that they keep around uh, because I actually do think it's really fun and smart and good and different. Um, it's about the our, our star is this woman, Jenny Baker. She is the first pitcher in Major League Baseball, um, female pitcher in Major League Baseball, and she's on the San Diego Padres. And it's sort of, it started out as sort of like, isn't this like so empowering? And now has like settled down and has been more like, this is a modern workplace drama. Um, and so I actually think that show is um, 
is pretty good. Uh, the Good Place. So NBC, like I think we can all like remember back when like NBC comedy like meant something, right? Like we had like this idea that that was a thing, um, and then that like profoundly <laughs> went away. Uh, and like I think NBC still really wants like hang on to that idea. There's a show, The Good Place, with Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. That I really like that, but that has an interesting sort of business angle as being they bought it outright, which almost never happens, and they bought it for 13 episodes <coughs> for its first season, and that's it. So a 13-episode season on network is really short. Like back in the day, Melrose Place used to air 35 new episodes oh a year, God. right? Like, like we used to, like that's sort of the length of the fall season. We have sort of September to June. Um, so getting only 13 episodes on a network show is rare. But I think for The Good Place, it's an interesting and like correct choice for them, given the kind of story they're telling. It's sort of this like quirky afterlife ensemble comedy where our hero Eleanor. Um, is like in the good place, but she actually was like sort of a bad person in life, and she realizes that she like there's like sort of a paperwork error that has caused her to go to heaven, um, and that kind of plays out, and in I think really funny and surprising ways. Um, what else? The big stuff. I mean, this was not a great fall season. There was nothing that it was just like drop everything. We know what love is now. Like there was nothing that quite hit when, me like that. When was the last year. time that happened? What, like what's the last fall show you can remember where last was... network fall show? Yes. Because Empire wasn't a fall show. That came no, out in mid January, right? So I mean I can't even remember. I honestly have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I mean I don't like always categorize things in my head as like did it come out in the fall? Right. The other thing is that there, you mentioned a bunch of network shows, but there have been a bunch of cable shows this year that yes. sort of started two, one or two weeks before the fall season usually starts, which is in mid-September. And to my mind, a couple of those shows, particularly Atlanta on FX, uh, Better Things on FX, which I haven't finished, uh, those you know are roundly considered to be two of the better shows of the fall. Those were great. Queen Sugar on uh, OWN, also I would loop in, they premiered the same week. What's that one? Queen Sugar is um, uh, is directed by Ava DuVernay and it's uh, set on a, it's like three adult siblings, the dad dies and they all come home and they're like, oh no, what do we do? But it's like a very um, like slow and patient and beautifully done show and it's just one of those dramas where you're like, okay, this is, it takes its characters seriously and you have that process where you're like, if this is true, what else is true? If this is the fight you're having right now, what can we credibly believe is how that fight started? If you're the kind of person who always runs into this problem, are there ways that that sometimes like comes to your, like is part of what made you successful, right? And so getting these like really fleshed out, like beautifully understood characters, that's, I really liked that. <laughs> so yeah, it happened uh, the first week of September this year. <laughs> oh, and then obviously like, we had a couple of Netflix rollouts in the fall too. We had, I guess Stranger Things is more of a summer show. A lot of people really liked that. The Crown, which just came out, um, very fancy. Who's watching The Crown? Is anyone watching The Crown here? Mm -hmm. What is The Crown, for those who don't know? It's a show about coughing. It's like 85% <laughs> coughs. Uh, oh, sorry. But it is. <laughs> um, you know, it's about Queen Elizabeth and her sort of like how she became the Queen of England and her like sort of younger life and her relationship with her father in particular and her relationship with her husband and the sort of machinations between the royal family and Winston Churchill and how uh, sort of, yeah, just like, I mean, it's that. And it's very beautiful, but slow. It's a little slow. It's slow. <laughs> uh, it's gonna run for a while. Well, they've, what, they've greenlit two seasons of 10 episodes each, and each season is supposed to take place over one decade in Queen Elizabeth II's life, and it's supposedly if they continue to invest in it, it's gonna go six seasons. So it's gonna cover 60 years of the queen's life, and the older she gets, they're probably gonna uh, have a different actress. And I read somewhere that the goal was to get to the point where Helen Mirren, who played <laughs> <laughs> Queen Elizabeth II in The Queen, which is from the same screenwriter uh, and the same director, maybe Stephen Daldry, so Peter Morgan and Stephen Daldry. Uh, she also played Queen Elizabeth II uh, on stage in a show called The Audience. Uh, if they get through it fast enough, then she can once again play Queen Elizabeth II uh, when it gets there. I'm enjoying it, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It looks really good. <laughs> Even that episode that was all fog. It was great. <laughs> a lot of good sweaters. So John, you cover more than just content here. You cover a lot of TV news. Yes. Um, which is stuff that on the culture side, we don't cover uh, all that much, except this year we have because Sort of the election and news and entertainment and where all that stuff crosses has really sort of muddied the waters. 
But in terms of TV news, uh, there have been a couple uh, of giant stories. You spent the entire month of July working on one in particular, which was? Roger Ailes. Um, you know, it's funny, you asked earlier, you know, you got into the beat, what were you expecting, what happened? I mean, the relevance of scripted television has become, you know, outsized in just the last few years. And TV news, as you've lost the big three anchors, you know, the relevance, you know, is everybody getting their news from watching CBS at 6.30? Uh, are people watching CNN? A year and a half ago, these are questions of, all right, you know, TV news isn't what it used to be. And then we got this election, and this suddenly became a huge, huge story. Add Roger Ailes' unbelievably quick downfall, which took 15 days. Um, yeah, there has been a lot of TV news to cover. So Fox News suddenly loses the guy who built it, uh, built it into the number one rated uh, cable news channel by miles. Um, so you had a power vacuum there, so we had to cover the fallout from that. Megyn Kelly's got a book that comes out tomorrow, um, which we thankfully got an early copy from, so we've been writing stories off of that. And then, you know, last month you have Billy Bush on a Access Hollywood uh, van, and he says all the, you know, the things he said along with Trump. Uh, Melissa Harris-Perry walks off her show in February. Kelly Ripa walks off her show. There have been nonstop TV news stories, <laughs> and then you get into the larger questions of what was cable news's role with Donald Trump, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, all saw enormous ratings gains this year. But was there too much Trump? These are questions that all the major cable networks are grappling with. So it has been a lot, a lot of cable news and a lot of TV news for the last year, thanks to Donald J. Trump. This is a very uh, sort of nitty-gritty question, and I'm not an editor on the business desk, so uh, I don't know this. Let's say over the course of that month, over July, when all this uh, Ailes News is coming in. Yeah. Do you have you had time to make sources in Fox News? Are you working with other reporters that have been at the Times for a longer period than you have in order to find those people? How do you get these pieces of information? It was it was all hands on pretty quickly. So July six, and of course I remember today. So it was Wednesday, July six, about eleven in the morning. Um, we got an email which nobody saw coming. It was from a publicist none of us had ever heard of who said, Gretchen Carlson is suing Roger Ailes. And right there, immediately, you know, this is unbelievable. It's sexual harassment. There are quotes from Roger Ailes that, you know, she claims that he said, and then we found out later she had secretly tape recorded him, and the majority of those quotes in the initial complaint came off that tape recorder. And we knew this was huge because one thing about Fox is you don't shoot inside the tent. It just doesn't happen. It never has happened. Roger Ailes prizes loyalty. So from the get-go, we were scrambling. Were there other women? It turned out to be yes, there were plenty of other women who would go ahead and accuse Roger Ailes of sexual harassment. And can we get Gretchen Carlson? So immediately I'm starting to work Gretchen's lawyer. We did get the first and only interview, at least it was the only interview, for months with Gretchen. Um, so it was, we were covering it from a number of different angles. What happens at Fox? Thankfully, we already have sources within Fox. And because Gretchen had blindsided them so much, it, they might have had a few days to prepare. You know, like, what are we going to say to the press? They didn't see this coming. They were floored. Um, so it helped a little bit with the information from what was happening within there. But this wasn't just a Fox News story. 21st Century Fox, which is run by the Murdochs, which after the phone hacking scandal from a few years ago with News Corporation, there's been a real effort to clean up the company. So when this landed, again, around 11 a.m., the Fox News, sort of their modus operandi would be, you would have an email an hour back with them blasting Gretchen. One hour passed, two hours passed, three hours passed. It was 6 o'clock when we finally heard something, and it came from 21st Century, not from Fox News, which said, we love Roger Ailes, but we, are, we take this matter very seriously, and we are conducting an internal review. And it was at that moment where our jaws dropped, and we said, oh my god, Roger Ailes could be in serious trouble here. It took them seven hours to respond. That is not the way this company used to work. There was a development, I mean, almost every day. I mean, 10 days later, Megyn Kelly, we find out that Megyn Kelly participated in the investigation, and then it was over. It was fait accompli at that point. And it was Roger Ailes negotiating uh, his exit agreement, in which he netted, I believe, $40 million. Uh, so, <laughs> so how do you know? This was over several weeks. How do you know? How do you, as a reporter, uh, and I guess how do your, your editors um, know when the story is done? Are you still 
in some ways gathering string on this just like follow? not anymore I mean as far as the accusations you know there have been so many accusations against Roger there's nothing else to report on at this point I mean there's so many people we've got it Roger's out of power um, but as far as the Megyn Kelly connection Absolutely, that's something we're going to continue to follow up on because Megyn Kelly, whose book comes out tomorrow, she writes in her book that initially she heard that Roger, that internal review that was supposed to happen, was pushing to make it, so the investigators, which were a law firm from Paul Weiss, would only interview Gretchen Carlson staff and nobody else at Fox News. And Megyn writes, she heard this, she said, okay, I think I have to come forward because this will be a sham of an investigation, strongly suggests it would be a sham of an investigation. And she called up Lachlan Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's son, and the executive chairman of 21st Century, and said, I have a story to tell you. And then she detailed how she was sexually harassed by Roger Ailes 10 years ago. Um, and Roger Ailes, of course, has denied that he sexually harassed her uh, subsequently. So no, the story, you know, the Fox News story continues, the Megyn Kelly story continues. What Roger Ailes, if he does something next, that will be a story. But as far as his relationship to Fox News, unless we find out he's talking to talent, which he shouldn't be, that story will sort of die down. But that was you know, all-consuming for a couple months over the summer. I want to talk about something that sort of bridges uh, the two of you, uh, which was a show that was on, on a Fox network on FX. Uh, how many people here have seen the People versus O.J. Simpson American Crime Story? Does everyone know what it is? Okay, so at the beginning of this year, I don't think that many of us could have predicted that there would be not only one very good uh, thing about O.J. Simpson, but two, because this summer ESPN had a uh, five-part miniseries called O.J. Made in America. Uh, all in all, I think we're talking 17 hours of O.J. Simpson related TV this year, which, what, why, what happened, like, but, again, shockingly, all of it is pretty good. Uh, John wrote a story early this year about that series, which went on to win uh, many Emmys. It was one of the big shows this year, and I wanted to know what you guys thought about both of them, because I suspect that at the end of this year, both of those TV shows will be on many critics' top ten lists. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. I think the first time I saw, I, the first two episodes for the OJ show, I think I saw last December, so this is almost one year, and it was just like, oh my God, this is really, really good. For the FX one or for the ESPN FX one? FX one, FX one. And it was like, oh my God, okay, this is going to be a hit to end all hits, and indeed it was. And, it, you know, there's an interesting backstory. The show is based off of a book that Jeffrey Tubin wrote in the mid-1990s about the trial, which everybody had forgotten. One of the producers of the show was at a bookstore in 2009, saw it, and was like, hey, this could be a TV show or maybe a movie. Um, and it was just a slow, winding process, and Hollywood had done everything it could for two decades, essentially, to stay away from OJ. I mean, it just had such a searing effect. Do people really want to relive this? And FX took the roll of the dice and said, we think, we, we think they do. And the reason they said that was because of Ryan Murphy. Ryan Murphy was really the person. He came into the project late, but when he discovered that it, was, it existed, he wanted to get it made, demanded it get made, and then it got made and became the biggest thing of all time. I mean, this really was the year of OJ. I mean, between that and ESPN, yeah, it was, it was crazy. I thought both of those uh, miniseries were excellent, um, but in super different ways, right? So the FX one sort of worked like a pinhole camera where we had all this big stuff, but we're seeing it through this really, really teeny lens, right? And we're telling these like deeply, deeply personal stories, and each episode sort of focuses on one person in particular. And I actually thought the front half of the series was like capable and good, but not like yes, watch this, and that shifted in uh, episode six, Marsha, 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 which is the episode that focuses mostly on Marsha Clark, and that was like, oh, oh my God, okay, they're really doing something special and interesting here, and it's not just like a very thoughtful dramatization of things that I've already heard. Um, it was like, oh, okay, we're finding like, like actual human stories to tell within this like sort of spectacle that kind of boggles the imagination. Um, the ESPN one goes in a really different direction and works more sort of like a prison, right? Where we're taking all of this huge information, bringing it in, and then putting it back out in this huge way. And so there's like all this context and all this, um, like I think many episodes of the ESPN doc stand alone as, like I think the first one is like just a very good history of 
um, racial politics in Los Angeles County. Like, it's just, it's a really good documentary about that. And then, like, the last moment is like, anyway, O.J. Simpson, like, <laughs> that, that, you know, you're like, oh, wow, I just, like, that that's a very interesting, thorough take and um, perhaps, like, the greatest B-roll, like, <laughs> like, archive calling that has ever been on television is, is the ESPN O.J. doc. I think part of it is that, like, all of the ideas that became extremely relevant in the O.J. trial still felt extremely relevant today, and it was an interesting yardstick to measure. Um, what are, like, in what ways has, like, American race relations improved or not improved, or do we claim that they've improved, but if you actually had to examine it, would have to be, have to admit that they had not? In what ways do we still accept misogyny? In what ways do we still sort of hang on to these weird, like, old wives' tales about stuff? Like, in what ways do we... Uh, participate in systems that oppress even us, but because those are the systems that hold up society, we know it, we're willing to subjugate ourselves to stay part of the machine, right? And so these are questions that are certainly not invented by the O.J. Simpson trial, but clarified deeply in that trial, and then um, having you know 20 years and change on it, and having the chance to sort of, people who kind of grew up with it in a different way, sort of like re-metabolize that sort of national catastrophe from their youth. Um, or certainly a younger day, um, I think was really interesting. I'm curious, like, was sort of, oh, in five years, what will be the thing that everyone is sort of um, obsessing over? Probably next year it will be the 20th anniversary of Buffy. <laughs> um, maybe that will give us two competing miniseries, one in which we thoughtfully recreate Buffy as it was, and one in which we sort of tell the whole context of how stories about teen women came to television in the first place. If there's one bad effect of 17 hours of phenomenal OJ coverage from this year, uh, television is a copycat uh, industry. And then suddenly people said, hey, there's stuff from the 1990s tabloid stories. Let's, let's get other stories. Law and Order is going to be doing a Menendez Brothers special. I think there have been like 15. There have been three Jean Benet stories. So yeah. many Jean Benet specials and shows coming out. I mean, I'm forgetting. There are other examples of this. It's Jean Benet. It's the Menendez brothers. There's an Amy Fisher one in a couple of weeks. Amy Fisher. So anyway, OJ. Oh, everyone just recoiled. <laughs> For those of you listening on the podcast, there's a hush, a real murmur in the crowd over that one. There is. Um, yeah, the OJ effect is not completely pure. Oh, it's not at all. No, it, look, television. Like, this is probably true of any industry, right? It can take anything good and make it horrible. That's what money is for, right? Like that's what that's what it does. So TV, if everyone knew how to make hit shows, we would only have hit shows, right? No one sets out to make flops. No one sets out to make a bad show, even even though that's hard to believe because there's like none of you thought this was bad. How did it get this far? So if if ever there's something good, you know, of course we're gonna like TV is going to make that again and again. And sometimes that works out, right? Like. All the shows that saw The Sopranos and were like, I want to tell a story about like a complicated man and he's bad, but we like him, but we're interested in him and like people are sad and messed up. Like a lot of those ostensibly copycat shows became excellent and don't feel like Xeroxes of The Sopranos in any capacity, but all the shows that tried to be lost, no, right? Like, and at a certain point, even Lost couldn't be lost, but all the shows that tried to be like, okay, there's a group of people, they're really different. They're all stuck in a bank. Like, that was called The Nine. They were all stuck in a bank. Um, it was a bank robbery. That's going to happen for anything. And, and we've seen that across all television for forever. There used to be 40 news magazines on in prime time. Then there were so many primetime game shows, right? Like, like anything else, there will always be like trends, and then they go away, and then they sort of come back. So if the trend is now like reprocessing '90s scandals, you know, I am sort of optimistic about the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan ones. Like, yeah, no, I am too. All right, yeah, you got me. There, there are already two excellent documentaries about it in the yeah, last two years. I like, could get enough. I could, I could, I'd be down for that. I need some more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, one of the sort of big regular stories that you're covering all the time uh, that you alluded to before is, uh, is HBO. HBO as a network, HBO in terms of their content, HBO in terms of uh, who's in charge, who's not in charge. What is that like and why has that network in particular, why does it capture so much of the imagination when there are so many other There's networks so many other things. Uh, the New York Times sure does love HBO. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, as Margaret said, I mean, Sopranos sort of invented a new form of television, right? So it sort of started everything, this peak TV-ness. And HBO has been known for its premium content, right? And everybody else is trying to become HBO. 
That includes Netflix. That includes, to a certain extent, TBS and TNT, which they said we want to go the FX HBO route. FX went the HBO route, and we've been we've been talking about FX up here quite a bit. So as a result, they are at the top. But because we've talked about, well, there's so many television shows, and there's a Netflix, and there's FX, and there's Showtime, and there's this. All of a sudden, HBO is facing more competition than it has ever had. And it was just recently purchased by AT&T. It's a telecommunications giant. So that's going to put pressure on them just a little bit more to make sure they produce more and more hits. HBO has been riding high for the last couple of years, especially last year. They have Game of Thrones, biggest hit on TV. Um, they had the Robert Durst documentary, The Jinx. They were riding very high. However, other than Game of Thrones, for having an ongoing series, a drama that was a hit, I don't really have anything else other than Game of Thrones. That's why when vinyl flopped, as it did earlier this year, people at HBO were worried a little bit. They said, wait a minute, we really have nothing in the pipeline so Westworld has been big for them because all of a sudden through seven episodes, we've got something that we can say is a ratings hit, it's a critical hit, and is eating up the internet. So HBO remains right up here, but everybody's starting to close in on them. They will remain one of the biggest stories of television for years to come. Uh, I would like to ask one more question of you guys up here, which is we haven't talked that much about uh, Netflix, which yeah. is one of the main sort of up-and-comers uh, nipping at HBO's toes. They put out more original series this year than God knows what. They're going to keep doing it until the end of the year uh, and into next year. They don't release ratings. All they go on is buzz. Um, what is it like to cover Netflix? Uh, Netflix, I mean, HBO, we have the benefit of being a Manhattan-based <laughs> company. And they are open and they're friendly to the press. This has been their MO. Netflix has its roots from, you know, from the Valley. They, this is a tech company. And as a result, tech companies, they tend to be quiet and secretive. And Netflix, they are quiet and secretive until they aren't. You know, if they have a Stranger Things, they'll talk to you all day long. Netflix is a trickier company to cover, especially because they don't play by the same rules. They don't disclose ratings. They say they will never disclose ratings. And the FX chief, who we've referenced a few times, John Landgraf, says, we want to know who's winning and losing. This is just a matter of competition. Disclose viewership figures so we can see this. So Netflix is a lot trickier, and they just keep spending and spending and spending. Put what one executive called you know, a shock and awe element to the entire industry, because they will outspend anybody because they have the money right now. So Netflix is trickier than HBO, but they, have, they are changing this industry. I mean, they, they are changing television. It's kind of crazy. I mean, next year we will have live streaming we will be able to watch, uh, buy live streaming stuff where you can, uh, YouTube, there is going to be a live streaming thing available. Hulu is going to have a live streaming service. I mean, we are going at streaming, uh, and Netflix has really pushed us all in that direction. Also partly responsible for collapsing ratings throughout linear TV, broadcast television, cable television. I want to ask Margaret, from a critical perspective, not only do viewers get all 13 episodes at once, but for many of these Netflix shows, uh, critics get all 13 episodes at once. There used to be a time, especially with network TV, and still in some ways with network TV, where you only get one or two episodes, and you as a critic have to come to some judgment about this hour-long drama or this half-hour comedy based on this one or two episodes. With Netflix, you'll get six, seven, sometimes you'll get all 13. Uh, as a critic, how does that change the way you approach a show? Do you feel responsible for watching all 13 say before you write a review? Do you, I mean, are there different ways of approaching that? Do you have a personal way that you approach it? So uh, my policy up until very recently was I would watch as many things as a network or outlet sent out. If you sent me five, I'd watch five if I was reviewing it, not just like for my own life. Um, so if you sent me all of the show, I'd watch all the whole show before I wrote a review. That became more complicated when I was getting 13 episodes and maybe only writing four or 500 words. That's not a great use of time. If you think of like one page in a magazine is like 750 words, so like a 400 word review is like half a page in a magazine maybe, like that's not, you can't spend 13 hours on like, otherwise a magazine would be like one page long, right? So uh, the, you sort of had to change the metrics on that. And part of that sort of came down to assigning fewer reviews per critic, basically, like, okay, maybe it is worth investing more time and more um, column inches to this show if it's really good. There's not a hard and fast rule for me at this point. I try to watch as much of a show as I can and as makes sense. 
right now, you know, a lot of the shows I cover, I cover only in uh, the watching newsletter, and so it's getting just like a paragraph. It's not really practical for me to spend, you know, 45 hours on a show to write one paragraph about it. That doesn't help anybody. Uh, and then we would just, we'd only be able to put out the newsletter once every like five years. And I was like, I've now watched enough shows. Like, let's get to it. Uh, I do try to watch as much of a show as I can. And certainly the more I'm writing about it, the more of it I'll watch. I am like in my own life, like a finisher. Like once I'm starting on a show, it's really hard for me to get show divorced. Like, like it has to get so bad or just like so like, oh, you're not the show I fell in love with. Like this is over. Um, whereas like I'll usually like, I believed in you. And like, I'm like the eighth grade English teacher who's like, come on, John, you're better than this. And, like, like encourages you back to excellence or whatever. Yeah, so there's no one rule. Certainly if there seems to be like a series long mystery or something, like it would be helpful. I might sort of skip ahead just to be like, do they solve it or what? And so I can say, probably not in a review, but certainly when people ask me, um, like, do they solve the mystery or what? I can be like, yes, they did. I'm like, no, they did not. <laughs> and like, that's, people are like very motivated by finding that out. I have plenty of readers and friends who are like, I don't want to start a show if they're just going to like screw around at the end, right? And, and I understand that impulse. Because um, like, you know, how many times you get burned before you're like, never again. Mm -hmm. So like I try for a show that has like an obvious arc or like set up as like the big thing is this, I understand why my readers might want to know like, does, is it worth it? Um, so I try to finish those shows. But people think maybe that critics love hating stuff and that's not true. If I could write raves all day every day, that would be great. I don't want to watch trash. I have like a life, you know, like I don't want to put garbage in my brain. So like if I could only write good about good shows, I would love that. And so when I get 13 episodes of a show that I think is really good, that's a really good day. Like I am psyched and I want to watch more of it and be able to write more about it and tell people like this will bring you happiness. Like you'll enjoy this. So like you'll be able to see a part of your life reflected on screen that no other show has ever been able to reflect back to you. And like, that will make you feel maybe less alone. That's nice. Like I like those opportunities. So when I get the full season of something, if it's good, like I will watch all of it. And if it's really bad, I'll give it probably longer a chance, more of a chance than it ultimately deserved. All right, thank you everyone for coming out tonight. It was a pleasure to talk to you all. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Times Insider. I'm Stephen Hiltner. Special thanks to Jocelyn Gonzalez and Pedro Rosado for producing this. Times Insider delivers behind-the-scenes insights into how news, features, and opinion come together at the New York Times. You can find out more about our articles, events, and podcasts at nytimes.com insider.